I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we are all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a, it's not all a hallelujah shouting match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good dose of holy joy would do us all well. And I'm not talking about silly putty religion here, brother. I'm talking about something that comes from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God. I believe of all the people alive on planet Earth today, we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that. I believe of all the people in the world, we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society. Good to see everybody. Happy Sunday to you. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians. We're going to be there. Chapter 4. We're going to be looking at two verses today. We're actually doubling back on a, a portion of the text that we looked at last week and uh, sort of unpacking that a little bit more as we uh, center on the Advent theme of peace today. So Philippians 4, verses 8 through 9 is where we will be. Grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, down the center aisle of seats are a couple Bibles Underneath those chairs, you can grab one and look around page 386 will be the the book of Philippians. We're going to read these verses out loud together, so grab your Bibles or you can cheat and read on the screen. Verse 8 and verse 9. Finally, brothers, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise... Think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather as your church, as Transit Church. Thank you for uh, all those churches like, like ours that are meeting, that are opening your word, that are singing songs to Jesus, that are being reminded of the good news of his life. Uh, his, his death, his resurrection, and, and who are just trying to live what the, the Bible says to us, what it exhorts us to, what it commands us to do in obedience to God, how, how we're trying to do that uh, uh, in the world that we live in. And so we pray your blessings upon uh, the preached word in those churches. We pray for ourselves, God, that you would help us to be attentive. God, this is an a important passage in Paul's letter. Uh, it, it's a familiar passage in all the Bible, words that we've seen before. God, I pray that you would give, uh, give this passage fresh wind today, that we would see it in a new light, that these whatevers just wouldn't be whatever in our lives, but they would be things that we ponder, that we take into consideration, uh, and that we meditate on. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you remember a time in your life where you didn't have anything to worry about? Like, like nothing was, was something that you would say that you were anxious about or worried about. I think for most of us, there's, there's this low-level sense of anxiety and worry that's with us all the time. Isn't that the case? I think it's the case for me uh, that worry is kind of embedded into our souls. And when we worry, what do we worry about? I think, uh, I mean, the, the, the list runs the gamut. Uh, most of us worry about our finances. I think it, it's, it's true that regardless of how much or how little money you make, you're worried about your finances. If you make a lot of money, you're worried about your money multiplying, about, about how your money is going to, uh, to outdo itself. You're investing, you're saving, you're putting your money, and you're wanting it to, to do more um, than, uh, than just sit there. But if you're like half the people probably in this room, you're worried about just like paying the bills, right? Making uh, the rent or the mortgage payment, uh, putting food on the table, um, saving up money for retirement and for your kids to, to go to school. I think uh, in the generation, the culture that we live in, a lot of us worry just about what we're going to do with our lives, about the future, about um, doing that thing that we perhaps might be called to do. I think the new uh, phrase uh, of many, even in their 40s, is, uh, I'm still try- I'm, I'm still um, st- deciding what I'm going to do when I grow up. I mean, in the 40s, people are still saying that. What am I going to do when I grow up? 
If you're a parent, you worry about your kids. I was talking to my mom earlier this week, and she reminded me that it doesn't matter how young or how old, even if your, your kids are married with kids, with their own kids, living uh, you know, a mature life, that you still worry about them. And so if you're a parent, you worry about your kid before you get them, and then you get them and you worry about like taking care of them, keeping them safe, giving them the right food, growing up, making sure they're educated. And then as a teenager, you worry about them leaving the house. Like, it's, it's time for you to go. You gonna leave? And then you worry about them getting through college, going on and maturing in life and becoming a productive citizen. But not all of us are parents, not all of us are married, and so if you're single, what do you worry about? Perhaps you worry about uh, finding a mate. You might worry as a Christian about uh, the pressures of the life that we live in, of of remaining celibate in a world that's all sexed up. Uh, You can't live in the world that we live in without worrying about the world that we live in. I mean, think about all the things that are going on in our world. You firstly have, uh, you know, the ins and outs and the the contention about global warming. There's uh, the increase of domestic crime. There's international terrorism that just pops up everywhere all the time. And you have our own government. I mean, who isn't worried about our government right now? There's no shortage of things that any of us could potentially be worried about. And that worry can be consuming of us. And that really is kind of what Paul has been telling the church at Philippi, that there are many things uh, circumstantially and situationally that can worry us. Said differently, here's what Paul is telling the, the, the church at Philippi. He says, there's many things that pose threats to our joy and our peace. It comes from without all those things that I just said that we worry about. To the church at Philippi, Paul specifically said, there's people who will oppose you. They'll oppose the gospel that you profess. There's people who will actually um, say out loud that they're enemies of the cross. And so it comes from without. There's pressure on us that makes us worry. But it also comes from within. And when, um, when there's pressure that causes us to worry from within, a lot of times it comes from our own self-centeredness, self-centeredness that can actually spill over into all of our relationships, like in a church, and disrupt the unity that God expects us to have. And so as Paul draws this letter to a close, uniquely, he doesn't focus on all the ways that we worry and the things that make us anxious. He calls our attention to the promise of peace, and that's really where we're going in our, in our sermon today. Uh, Last week, I briefly looked at a passage that contains two of the most talked about, quoted uh, verses in all the Bible. Look at verse 6 of Philippians 4. Here's what Paul says. He says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Last week I said that Paul's saying something very simple. He's just saying, don't worry. Given all the things that are going on in your life, pressure from within, pressure from without, he's saying, don't worry. And we want to attribute these words to Paul, but actually Paul is still in from Jesus because Jesus has really said these same things. Uh, you don't have to turn here. I, I need to turn here because I need to read it. Uh, In Matthew 6, in the midst of the Beatitudes, Jesus is talking to his disciples about a whole host of things. And one of the things that he he hits pretty hard is about this idea of not being anxious, of not worrying. He says in verse 25, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Why? Don't don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, nor about your body. What you put on is, is life not more than food and body, not more than clothing. Verse 28, he says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they are adorned and how beautiful they are. They're, they're, they're clothed with splendor beyond what even Solomon was able to have in his kingdom. And then down at verse 34, he says, Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So three times in the Beatitudes, Jesus to his disciples is reminding them of all the opportunities they have in life to worry about stuff, to be anxious, to be to, to fret. And he simply says, don't worry. So in Philip in Philippians, here's what Paul's doing. He's cutting to the chase. He's not, he he's not filling in all the gaps because Jesus has already said that. And Paul's just stealing from Jesus. Paul just says, why don't y'all just stop worrying about, about everything? But he doesn't leave them that with that. He actually goes 
a little bit further, and he gives them a corollary. He says, here's what you do instead of worrying, you, you pray. Not just pray, but you, you give thanks to God. You ask God, because when you do those things, you're giving over all those things for which you could be worried about and for which you are anxious to, to God, because he's the only one really that can, can answer the prayer that you're praying anyway. He's saying what Peter says, that we have the opportunity to cast our care on God and therefore declare our dependence on him. He's saying we can assume a posture of grace, acknowledging that at the root of our prayer, we're saying thank you to the, to, to the Lord for the way that through the gospel of Jesus, he cares for us by listening to us and even answering our prayer. And so today we want to sort of take note of that, that, that Paul is offering us this opportunity not to be anxious. And here's, here's the pretty cool result of, of not worrying. Paul says God gives you his peace, the peace of of God. When we don't worry but pray, God gives us his peace. And I don't know how that sounds to you, but it's actually a, a pretty huge thing that Paul is commending for us, that he's offering for us, that we get peace that, that God himself possesses. He's saying the serenity of Jesus, uh, that, that Jesus encompasses in his being, comes and shrouds itself over us. It's a peace that he has, but it's a peace that he also gives. Jesus says it this way in John's gospel. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is a special kind of peace. He says it's a peace that transcends all rationality. It's a peace that goes beyond your thoughts and your imagination it's a peace that guards your hearts and your minds. That word guard is a unique word that Paul uses. It's a military um, kind of an idiom. He's giving us this perspective. Y- y'all pull uh, the military persons in here. Pull guard duty, right? Guard your post. Don't leave your post until properly relieved, that kind of a thing. And that, as, as, a, as a guard, as a sentry, you're not letting anybody out that doesn't have permission to get out. And you're definitely not letting anybody come in. And he said, that's what peace is like. It's guarding your mind and your heart such that the worry is permissively able to leave because you've turned that over to God. But it's, it's not allowing that worry to come in and flood your soul. And that's a, that's a pretty... Uh, vivid picture that he's giving us. It's a powerful piece that he's offering us. And perhaps what makes it so powerful is that it comes irrespective of your actual circumstance. In fact, Paul is, is hinting at it even, your prayer might not get answered. So you can pray a prayer. You might be in distress, like on the inside, but he's saying, there's a peace that God can give you of whether I get my prayer answered or not. God's going to give you peace in that circumstance or situation. And, and that makes sense because where's Paul right now? Paul's in jail. He's chained to a, a Roman guard. He has no freedoms uh, whatsoever. He doesn't even get fed unless someone uh, outside of him brings him food to eat. So Paul says we can have not only joy, but we can have peace outside of our, of our circumstance, and it's not just a fleeting kind of a peace. It's a peace that guards my heart and my mind. And so continuing in this same vein, today in our text, Paul is, is going to make uh, two connecting thoughts in regards to this idea of peace, the peace of God. In verse 8, he's going to tell us to think the thoughts that invite the peace of God, to think on things that might invite God's peace to invade your life and whatever's going on. And in verse nine, he says to practice the actions that will bring the peace of God. There's a lot of words. Here's how I say it. He's telling us, ponder these things and practice these things. Ponder these things. Verse eight, Paul tells us to think about or ponder whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Paul says, think on these things. I'm using the word ponder. Ponder here is is one of the translations from this word, think. Uh, Ponder obviously would be a a stronger kind of a 
uh, a perspective on this word. This word ponder, or, or as Paul is using it, think, means to calculate. Y'all, um, I mean, have you done math lately? You got to, most of us in the room, not my son David, has to think about doing math, right? You got to apply yourself to do that. To ponder is to let your mind dwell on something, to give proper weight to something and therefore come to a conclusion about it. So in other words, uh, Paul is demanding that we as Christians use our minds in a discerning way. That's what he's encouraging us to do, to to not let our minds... um, be outside the salvation that God provides. When, when God saves you, he doesn't just save your soul. That salvation uniquely comes to all of you. God is saving every aspect of your life that you would offer worship to all uh, of all of who you are, to all of who he, he is. And part of that includes his claim on your mind, on your brain. Uh, these are familiar words, familiar verses. Uh, many of you have heard these. You've seen them on in Lifeway on a, on a picture that you put up on your wall. You've got a coffee cup that says, think about these things, right? I mean, you, we've seen these words. Perhaps they might be too familiar to some of us. Uh, I like them because of the, I mean, the, just not the words, the simplicity of the words. I like the way, uh, the rhythm that Paul is giving us this. And he does this on purpose. He's giving us Six parallel phrases. He uses the he says the word whatever is, and then he adds an adjective on the end of it. This is meant to be a list, and uh, I, I think Paul uniquely put this in his letter in this place because he's trying to wake his wake the readers up. And so, if you're amongst the, the congregation at the Church of Philippi and you heard this, you would have there in, in the Greek. There's a rhythm to to how these words are being unpacked, it, and it, I mean you would have taken notice of it. Uh, uniquely here, commentators say these aren't typical Bible words. You won't see these. uh, These words are used um, less in the New Testament than they are in the Jewish literature of of Paul's day, the the Jewish wisdom literature, and the ancient pagan um, Greek writers like Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics. Uh, Paul is playing to the fact that the, the Philippians were Romans first. They were immersed in the culture, the literature, um, and the wherewithal of, of being Romans. And so this language that Paul is using of, of thinking, of using our minds and letting that lead us would have been uh, uh, something that they would have uh, been attracted to. Here's the last thing that I, I want to point out. These are, this is Paul's last, last commands in Philippians. He's not going to give them an imperative about anything else. So from, from here on out, he's just going to be exhorting them um, in, in his letter. And what I think is, is surprising to me, hopefully surprising to you too, is, is almost like what Paul says previously in, in, in this letter, chapter 4, about joy. Uh, the, the surprising thing here is the simplicity of, of what he's saying. Paul is not trying to give us a secret to getting joy or a secret to getting peace. I mean, he lays it out very simply. He's, he's saying uh, there's, there's some all-encompassing instruction that I want to give you. And it's for whatever you're facing, if you're suffering something, if you're anxious about anything, if you want peace, there's some things you just need to ponder. And so keep that in mind as we're looking at it. And the first thing that he says is whatever is true. We're going to go through this list, and uh, it's not going to take so long time, but we're going to at least unpack what these mean. Whatever is true. This, Paul is using this idea of, of truth in the broad sense. He's packing a lot of things in here. But principally, he's talking about those things that line up with facts. Not just facts from an external world perspective, the facts as God would lay them out. He's talking about the things that God has revealed that are true for us in, in his word. It also means stuff that's authentic and not bogus. What's real rather than what's apparent, what's firm rather than what's uh, uh, ephemeral. And think about how the culture um, treats all of us with this idea of truth. We are really bombarded with lies and falsehoods in our, in our culture. I'm a news junkie. I'm always on my phone looking at news. Like our family stops at about six o'clock because I'm, I mean, they, the kids hate it. But I just want to see what's going on on the national news. And here's the thing, if, if you're going to be attuned to the news in our culture, really around the world, 
You got to have one eye open and you got to have your mind alert because the, the, the news media is making assumptions and they're thrusting those assumptions at you, trying to get you to believe what they have, um, what they have to prove is, is true. Not even trying to prove it. They're just telling you this is what you should believe. And they're trying to make you uh, adhere to their assumptions from their own POV, their own personal uh, point of view. And we get this all day. And here's what Paul is saying in this idea of, of thinking about whatever is true. He's saying, don't be fooled. That you, as a person of God, need to be discriminating, that you need to be discerning in regards to what's coming into your mind, because what's coming into your mind is affecting you, and, and, and the truth is, you're living out of it. And so we need to ask ourselves, what's fooling me? What might be beguiling me? What am I being introduced to that's charming me that might be just a uh, a pot full of lies. What tr- what's tricking me? And it really, it could be anything because our culture makes assumptions about almost everything. We make assumptions about justice, and this is how justice goes for uh, for most of us. Uh, justice is like if I'm going to get cut off in traffic, I'm going to cuss you, right? I mean, y'all ever do that? Cuss somebody because they cut you off. If you do me wrong, I'm going to sue you. Um, we want to stick it to the man. Our cultural thoughts about justice is uh, the man is going to get it if he does me wrong. And the man could be anything. I found myself doing this yesterday. So, and my wife caught me, and she called me out on it. So we had, this, we had a pretty big holiday open house plan for the, the leaders of our church. And, I mean, we had, like, rearranged our house and catered some food and all kinds of stuff. And this impending storm is coming. And I'm like, I'm, just, I'm fretting. I'm, like, anxious. Like, I'm going to pick up Jonathan and I know that I've got all this food order, and the news media is telling us, the storm is coming. All the weathermen are agreeing for once. Like, the storm is coming. It's not going to be a lot of snow, but definitely, if you don't have to be out, don't be out. All right? So, I mean, I was thinking about that. And so I made the decision, all right, let's not jeopardize anybody's safety. Let's just not have it. We'll postpone it. Wake up Saturday morning, like, where is my snow? Where's the snow? I couldn't believe, and and it came out of my mouth. It's like, that doggone weatherman, how can he let me down like that? What was I doing? I wanted justice. I was blaming my decision on the weatherman because he had, like, upended my life and ruined my big party that I was going to have. And we do that too, don't we? We we don't, we want justice on anything that impinges upon our idea of how our life should be treated. And that's an assumption that we make of justice. Our culture uh, makes assumptions about, and we lie about fashion, body type, and beauty. Our, our culture is telling you what beauty and fashion should look like. And if you aren't thinking about that from a, a word perspective, then you might give in to this is what social media is presenting to me as what beauty is of where true, uh, um, true beauty lies. And you'll try to be like all those things that you see. Sinful pleasures charm us because they, they entice us to believe that we can, we can participate in those things without, uh, without them having any effect. And so we're really caught up in this battle. There's a, there's a battle raging around us, and we're being enticed to believe not if something is godly or not. We're being, we're being forced to choose if something is, uh, is it true or is it not. I would say society is giving us a false narrative all the time. And if you don't have two eyes open and a mind that's alert, that's pondering these things through the filter of Scripture, then you absolutely will believe anything. And so when Paul says, ponder what's true, he's saying, think on things that conforms to God's word and his gospel. He's saying, Things that adhere to God's statement about reality and truth and worth are the things that you should be living your life through, through that filter. Keep your minds there, Paul says. So whatever is true, the second one is whatever is honorable. And this refers to things that are entitled to honor and respect. These are things that are dignified, things that are are majestic. And of course, that's another countercultural idea in our society. Ours is an ironic culture. We listen to comedians and late night stand up uh, talk show hosts that, that love popping the, the, the balloon of pretension. Uh, and if you would, you know, like get, I mean, I like to listen to them too. I mean, I don't mind uh, some of the things that they say, 
But if you live out of what they're saying, you're going to end up laughing at everything and mocking everybody. And that's not always good. I, I think if we buy into our culture, then it's telling us that respect and honor and nobility are, are out of fashion and no one deserves that. That's just old school stuff. And so here's what Paul is encouraging us to do, to ponder things by using, using our discernment. And here's why he says honorable things. This is, this is important. Because they whisper about a God that's honorable and majestic. God is honorable and majestic. And, and I mean, the God that we serve, he's not a God that we should be laughing at. So think on what's true. Think about what's honorable. And the next thing he says is think about what is just. Ponder whatever is just. Uh, this is the Greek word for righteous. Think righteousness here. Paul says, ponder those things that are in conformity with justice, the law, and morality. But more than that, he says it refers to anything that accords with, with God's divine standards for you and for me. And so if your mind is going to dwell on anything, dwell on the things that are just. Look at life through the world, uh, the, the lens of, of God's standard. I say it like this, delight in justice. What does delight in justice uh, imply? Well, firstly, it applies that a fallen world doesn't want to delight in justice. It wants to take advantage of and gain and, and see life through its own perception, but it doesn't want to, to necessarily have uh, a delight in justice. To delight in justice, if you're a student, would be to... Um, do all those things as you're getting close to exams to, uh, to you know, cite examples and be specific and not try to cut corners at, in, your, in your exams or in your papers or in your grades. To delight in justice would be at work, if you're an employee, do all those things that your work actually requires you to do. Don't try to go around, turn any corners or, or, or be slack in what you're, what you're doing. Uh, in a few months, we're going to be thinking about paying taxes. To delight in justice would be to put a smile on your face as you're doing your taxes, to pay those taxes and not fudge on your income. Seeing the world, how God measures and values things is what this idea of, of thinking on things that are just. And so Paul says, think about what's just, think about what's honorable, think about what's true. And then he says, think about what's pure. And these are things that are pure in thought, word, and deed. This would include sexual purity. Uh, things that aren't tainted with evil, things, uh, and this includes um, our motives. Paul has used this idea a couple times in his writing. He's used it in this letter. In, in chapter 1, he says there's people who preach Jesus out of envy and rivalry. In other words, they're using the wrong motive, doing the right thing, but doing out of the, out of the wrong motive. And so this, of course, is all-encompassing, embraces a lot. It's what we look at. It's what we fill our minds with. It's, it's our attitude as well. And Paul has written about this elsewhere. In Ephesians 5.3, he says, Don't let sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness be named among you. No filthiness, no foolish talk. And in other words, there's all these things that come at us from different uh, medium sources, things that we expose ourselves to. And Paul is saying, if you're pondering whatever is pure, then not a hint with, uh, of that you would want that to, to leak into your life. And of course, we live in a, in a, a media-saturated world. We live in a social, social media-saturated world. And so that's, that's going to be a challenge for all of us. I mean, that's, that's like downright hard. Have you ever thought about this? I mean, the God that we serve knows everything, and he knows everybody, which includes you. God knows you. And so if God were peering into um, what he sees and hears from your life, would the facial expression, if God had a face, anthropomorphic, if God had a face, would he be smiling at you because your, your motives and your actions are pure, or would he have a furrowed brow because there's some, there's some room for improvement? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, fifthly, he says, whatever is lovely. And then, these are things that are pleasing, that give us pleasure and satisfaction. These are also things that call forth love and admiration or affection. I like to say this, this embraces aesthetic beauty. It's, it's listening. I don't listen to classical mu music, but uh, we listen to it in our home because Jonathan. Jonathan listens. I mean, this is his, his world. And so it's listening to a piece of music, and it, it's just it's like so majestic and lovely that it brings a tear to your eye. You've heard, you heard the phrase, it's so beautiful that it hurt. It's like looking at um, 
the, the skyline of, of, of New York City against the backdrop of a beautiful sky and seeing a bird fly across, I mean, like painting worthy. It's like seeing a mountain range in Colorado uh, with, the, with the peaks, um, snow cap. It's, it's just beauty that you couldn't make up and that no man could create. Those things that only God can do and appreciating that. And lastly, he says, whatever is commendable. And these are simply things that are worthy of our praise. That are, that are worthy of our admiration, worthy of our approval. And of course, the, the implication here is that we should spurn those things that are contemptible. So, so six things, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, Paul says, think on those things. And at the end of, of, of verse 8, before he gets to the think part, this is what he says. He sort of summarizes this list by saying, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, and, and this is Paul's way of sort of getting at like lump sum. Uh, excellence is anything referring to, to moral excellence. Anything consistent with God's moral character. And then he says, if there's anything worthy of praise, which simply means if there's anything that God would approve. If it's consistent with God's character, if God would approve it, those are the things that he's telling us would be worthy of us thinking about. Now, here's, what, here's my commentary on, on all of those. I know it took a little bit more time than I, than I wanted. We should be surprised with some of the things that Paul has said here. And, and we shouldn't be surprised at the grandiosity of it. We should be surprised at the simplicity of it. I mean, none of this is like revel- revelatory kinds of stuff, right? Paul has used words that we know. He's even given us thoughts that we know. But here's what he's trying to, to get across to us. This is the stuff that we should be thinking about. He's like, if you're going to think, think here. If you're going to focus your mind, focus it here. This is the stuff that we should cherish. This is the stuff that we should use as a lens for the evaluation of stuff that we let in our minds, that we let in our heart, and that we live out of. We should spend our time um, pondering these kinds of of things. Uh, more importantly, he's saying this is the first mark of gaining the peace of God. Just thinking the right things. If you think the right things, then you'll, you'll, you'll make yourself eligible for the peace of God. But there's an assumption underlying what Paul is saying, these commands. And here's the assumption. He's saying what you think is the real measure of who you are. I like to use the, the proverb in the King James Version, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you look that up in the ESV or NIV, it's not going to read the same. But this is true words, isn't it? What we think is who we become. But it's not just what we think, it's how we think. That is, if what you fill your mind with and what it dwells on is perhaps the decisive factor in how you live your life. And the Bible testifies to this. There's, there's many scriptures that, that talk about this. They talk about the wicked. The wicked don't just do wrong. They are wrong. I quote uh, Psalm 14 a lot. Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Here's the part we don't quote a lot. It says they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And so there's, there's a, a, a couple things that Paul is doing. He's giving us the, the train of thought. Uh, a, a fool will have this thought. But then he actually lives out the evil consequences from the things that he thinks. We do what we, we, we become what we think, is what Paul is saying. Jesus says it's out of the heart that evil thoughts and deeds come, Matthew 15. Jesus' brother James says in James 1, sin happens when we're lured by our desire, and the desire gives birth and eventually leads to death. All these um, Bible writers are saying the same thing. What we think, more importantly, how we think, is the measure of who we are. And, and as you're thinking about that, that's not all good news. Because sometimes we think things that aren't pure and lovely and commendable and, 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 and right and noble and honorable. And I think that's why the Old Testament gives us this right picture of us. In Jeremiah 31, God doesn't promise to give us new laws. He doesn't lure the standard. He doesn't make a new arrangement with us because he knows we haven't actually fulfilled the first arrangement that he gave with us. But here's what he promises us. 
He says, I'm going to write my laws on your heart. That's covenant language. God is going to come. He, he meets us where we are. And, and when God binds himself to us, he doesn't covenant with us based upon what we're going to do because he knows we will fail. We won't, we won't make it. He covenants to us based upon his own faithfulness. The prophet Ezekiel takes this idea one step further. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put my spirit in you. And so here's what the Old Testament is doing. The Old Testament is giving us a picture of a promise that God makes that Jesus actually fulfills in the New Testament when he sends the Holy Spirit and says the Holy Spirit is going to be in you. God gives us the Holy Spirit. One more example, Paul tells the Romans how to avoid worldliness and wickedness in the world. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why the renewing of our minds? Why do our minds need to be renewed? Because what you think is the real measure of who you are. And so let's, let's apply this. And a part of applying this is recognizing that this doesn't just happen automatically. And that's why Paul has given this to us as an imperative, as a command. We don't just drift into godliness. That's why he's written Philippians 4.8, telling us you got to think about some certain things because the culture is trying to form you and you need to be informed by the word of God. That's why he tells us in Romans 12 to renew our mind. There's, there's this battle going on around us. There's a battle for our minds that's, that's raging against us. Your, your own flesh wars against you, wars against your mind. Your flesh, Paul would say, or, or is that part of you that's not submitted to God? I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but there's parts of us that just don't want what God wants. And so that's warring against your mind, our own fears and insecurities, the bitterness that, in, that rages against us, the, the grudges that we hold. Those are warring against your mind. The world lies to you every day, trying to give you assumptions that aren't godly, and it wars against your mind. There's a cultural distraction around you all day through social media, through the news, through people that you see that's warring against your mind. Think about the way that information comes at you now through your smartphone, through your computer, through the TV. It's, it's any wonder that any of us can concentrate on anything that's good and noble and right at all because we have this counter message that's coming against us. It's warring against your mind. And so here's what Paul counters with that. He says, it's why we need focused concentration on God's word. Particularly, we need to think about things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. And if we're thinking about those, obviously we need to stop thinking about things that aren't like that. We need to align ourselves, think about life in view of God's word. Don't just respond to the next beep on your, on your smartphone, the next email that buzzes into your inbox. Paul says, stop. But more than that, he says, think. And so this, in this text, Paul's trying to orient our minds that your mind daily, carefully, intentionally might think on and ponder such things as he's presenting here, that God would rework our minds, that he would reorder our values through careful Prayerful meditation. That's the, I mean, that really is the word that characterizes what he's talking about in verse 8. He's talking about meditation. I was convicted this week because last week I, I casually mentioned, you know, I read the whole Bible, you know, at least once, you know, once a year. And I mean, there can be a, like a, a prideful impl implication there that you should be reading your Bible too. And, and surely I, I made the connection. We don't, you know, joy, we get joy from Jesus. Sometimes we don't know how to get Jesus. Jesus in the Word. How do you get Jesus? Read the Word. And I talked about reading the word. Um, here, here, Paul is challenging Jeff. He's like, all right, so it's, it's not the quantity, it's the quality. And so, folks, here, here's permission to not read a bunch of the Bible, but to go deep on what you read, to, to meditate, to, to spend time letting it roll over in your mind, let it roll over in your head, to take it in so that what you're reading reorders the values that, and, and it serves as a counter to everything that you're getting from the culture. Because I don't know about you, but my mind goes like in a million places a minute. I mean, think about what all the places that you go in a particular day that, that 
your own mind takes you when you should be focusing on other things. And so let's ask ourselves, where is our mind? Where are we oriented? What exactly are we dwelling on? That's what the text is asking us. And of course, there's an implication here. This is not just an intellectual exercise that Paul is trying to get us to do, just to think for, for knowledge's sake. What he's saying is we reflect on things so that we can be shaped by them. And I think that leads to Paul's second command here. The second mark of gaining the peace of God. Practice these things. Verse 9. I'm in the wrong book of the Bible. Verse 9. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the emphasis that Paul has just taking us on is, is think these things. And right in verse 9, he's taking us from the idea of thinking to actually moving into to action. When Paul says practice, he's encouraging us to do something. He's encouraging us to accomplish something. Uh, the verb tense is, is ongoing. It's like keep putting these things in the practice. And so obviously it's like the question is, um, practice what? What am I supposed to be putting in the practice? And of course, he gives us another list. This list is a little bit hidden, but there's four verbs here, uh, four short rhetorical words, all connected by the Greek word chi, the, the conjunction and. Listen to this. Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And so the connection is, Paul is connecting verse 9 to verse 8. The, the what you've seen in me is, is picking up from the these things in verse 8. So Paul really is, although he's giving us a, a separate list of things to do, he's not giving us a, a whole other list like what he's giving us in chapter 8. He's saying all these excellent, praiseworthy things that your mind should be dwelling on and pondering, now you need to go out and do these things. And, and here's what he's claiming. He's claiming that all these things have been displayed in him, principally when he was with them 10 years ago, but throughout the, the, the rest of that time that they have known him and, and being able to glean from his life. He said, you, you've already seen these things. What you've heard, what you've learned and received and seen in me, you've seen it in my teaching. You've seen me living it. You've seen it in a living example. And what I like about that is Paul doesn't just give them a list of commands and say, hey, you need to go do that. He's actually giving them um, the wherewithal the, the to do it. He's saying, you know what? I'm a pretty disciplined person, but if I can do it, here's some hope. You can do it as well, because I was pretty jacked up. And God has come, and he's changed me. So we don't know everything that Paul is talking about here in term, when he says what, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. But the implication is he just wants them to imitate him. And that's been the, the recurring theme in this text, right? Imitate me. But, but Paul is not being prideful here. He's saying, imitate me because I'm imitating Jesus. And so if we're going to imitate Paul, I can, uh, we can assume that he's, there's a couple things, really, a, a lot of things that he's already said in this, this great book of his, this great, this great letter that he wants us to imitate. Firstly, he's saying, imitate, imitate my ambition, Think about Paul and his, and his ambition. What was Paul's ambition? To make Jesus known by his gospel, through his death and through his resurrection. And, and, and Paul wanted Jesus' life to be magnified in his life so that everybody saw it. And, and Paul was like this. You know what? It doesn't even matter if I die or if I live. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exhaust myself for the cause of Christ. And so he's saying, imitate my ambition. He's saying, imitate and cherish um, the way that I, uh, that, that I believe in Christ, the way that I have given myself to all that Jesus is. And, and this is the way Paul articulate this. He's like, you know what? I've, I've got a lot of discipline. I've gained a lot of success. I have some deeds in my life, but all of those things are rubbish for the sake of, of just knowing who Jesus is and living my life loving and serving him. He's saying imitate and trust in Christ finished work. Look what he says in, in, in chapter 3, verse 9. This is not going to be on a screen, sorry. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from, faith, from God that depends on faith. And so he's inviting them to imitate the, the faith that he has, not in what he's done, but in, in Christ and what he's done in our place for our sin. And we find that in the gospel. He's saying imitate his desire to know Christ. Chapter 3, verse 10. To know Christ in the power of his resurrection and, be, and to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He would say imitate his desire. What's Paul's desire? Chapter 3, verse 12. To press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And lastly, I think he would say imitate his joy. The, the joy that wasn't circumstantial or based upon Paul's situation, but that was firmly fixed uh, in knowing the hope that he had, not in this life, but the life to come. A joy, but also a peace. And, and if you think about that, Paul is saying all of these things while he's uh, in jail, not just jail in Rome, but he, he's thinking back to his own self as he's planning the church, laying in a jail with Silas, locked up, the Philippian jailer, fast asleep. And what's Paul and Silas doing? They're singing a hymn, a hymn of praise to God. And he's saying, imitate that. Imitate my behavior. Imitate the, my outlook on life, my values, and my attitudes. And then when we do that, and, and I'm almost done, here's, here's the breathtaking promise. And, and this should surprise you, because this is not what I would write if I were Paul saying, all right, think on these things, practice these things, and this is what, this is what God's going to do for you. This is what Paul says, and Paul knows better. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That's surprising. He's saying we get the God of peace when we think rightly, when we think through the filter of who God is and what he's done, and when we practice those things as we're thinking them. Thinking things that are true and honorable and pure and just and lovely and commendable. When we think these things and practice these things, we have the priceless assurance that the God of peace will be with us. And, and that's not a, an unfamiliar phrase. As Christians, we know that God is with us, right? He's, he's always with us. Uh, Jesus says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But I think what Paul is doing is he's adding a nuance here. He's saying, he's calling into mind the, tas the tapestry of all the promises that the Old Testament has made about a God who is coming, a God that promises fulfillment of blessing and, and riches and well-being and security and satisfaction and flourishing and joy, and if I might add that, and, and peace. And He's saying that comes from being in a right relationship with God. And I think he is trying to just invoke the, the emotion from that to this church at Philippi and probably us as well. This, this term, the God of peace, is combining really two things. It's combining the character of God and the activity of God. And I, I think it's one thing particular in regards to his it, character. So the, the phrase is, the God of peace will be with you. And so Paul's not just saying God is here in the room with us in, in, prox in spatial proximity. He's saying God comes with the character of God. And, and what's the word that we use when we're talking about the, the character of God? We think about his love, right? The unconditional, unfading, just glorious love of God. But when God brings his character to love you, he also blesses you. And in this case, he blesses you with peace. And so God's not just there, he's there and he's active. And part of that activity is the enablement and transforming power that I think actually gives you the peace that you desire. And so here's what this text is not doing for us. This is a list of commands. These are imperatives. Paul's saying there's things for you to do. But, but Paul is not intending for us to just be obedient for obedience's sake. And here's the thing. This is true for me and for you. Your obedience doesn't necessarily change you. You know that? You can do everything the Bible says and still be a hypocrite. You can be like Paul, who, who 
was obedient to the law um, more than most. And where did it get him? It got him knocked off of his rock or off of his horse on the road to Damascus. And so we can, obe- we can be obedient to what God says and not have that change us at all because our obedience, doesn't, obedience does not change us. And so what changes us? God himself does. God has to come and reveal himself to you to change you. And, and so the text is not calling us to clothe ourselves in the personal serenity of God so his, his peace surrounds us, uh, uh, shrouds us. This is what the text is offering. The text is offering for you to receive God himself. That God in all that he is would, would both give you the, the, the presence of his peace, but that he would reward you by giving you himself, pondering and practicing these whatevers, yields the peace of God. Because those whatevers reflect the God who is. God offers himself, and and really that's what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? Christmas isn't just Jesus in the manger. Christmas is that. It's the eternal God who comes down. He incarnates himself as a baby. That's the essence of Advent. But, but the baby does keep growing. He lives life on earth in the person of Jesus. He dies. He resurrects. He brings peace to our world and to our hearts. Peace by reconciling us to God. And, and, and this text is talking about the same Jesus, the same God of peace that will be in you, that will prompt your obedience that will accompany your efforts to sustain you amidst life's circumstances and worries, to empower you with the peace of God and give you himself, the God of peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. There's a lot that we could worry about uh, in our own families, uh, in the world about us. But you promise uh, this beautiful uh, promise in your words here today. And really what echoes throughout the Bible. uh, First, that you are uh, you offer us the the peace of God, a peace that transcends our understanding. And so there's some people here who need your peace, that there's things going on in their lives that they can't control, even if they wanted to. They, They can't contrive the, the, the thing that they want to, to happen in, the, in these situations and circumstances. And, and they're crying with all their heart that you would hear their prayer more than that you give them peace. And so I, I, I echo that prayer, God. Some of us need your peace. Would you give it to us? But God, what you're offering here, along with the, the sure presence of God, is that you're giving us yourself. You want to, to give us uh, who you are, all of who you are, that you want to enable us and empower us such that your peace is not just in the room, but it's over us, in us, and, and helping us to be obedient and to do all those things that you are calling us to do. I pray that for our people. I pray that for our world that we would sense uh, your power and your presence in this Christmas time. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.